Hello, and welcome to the Morning Bell podcast, where we interview authors, discuss writing-related topics, and talk about the writing process as a whole. If you want any more information about the Morning Bell and what it is, look up themorningbell.net. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics that you'd like to see discussed, email the co-editor of the Morning Bell, Kezia Lebanski, at the email address kezia at themorningbell.net. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell podcast. My name is Joel Martin, and as usual, I am joined by Luke Manley, my co-host. Luke, how's it going? Uh, good, thanks. What have you been up to this week? Uh, um, some more writing. Yeah, what'd you get up to? Um, <laughs> yeah, getting through another short story for the series I'm working on. Yeah. And uh, how's that going? A couple of reviews. Actually, I did do it. Yeah, I did another review. Oh, you the did the podcast. reviews. Right, okay. Yeah. Anybody do a review of you? Uh, not a recent one. Okay. Uh, there's definitely one in the, uh, what is it, two, three Aurealis editions ago. Oh, nice. <laughs> Lovely. All right. Well, also, on this podcast, we have a guest, as we usually do. Uh, last week's was Michael Pry, and if you haven't heard the episode, then I suggest you go and check that out. Um, currently, we've got Dr. Ewan Mitchell. Um, now, I've known Dr. Mitchell for uh, two years, I'd say. Um, but Dr. Mitchell is a author, editor, publisher, and lecturer in professional writing. Originally a staff writer and commissioning editor for an independent educational publisher, Ewan became a senior editor for a major publisher before he successfully self-published his first novel in 1998. Since then, he has continued writing fiction and non-fiction books, both published and self-published, while helping writers from all walks of life launch their works into orbit. His latest book, originally commissioned by the Australian Society of Authors, is Your Book Publishing Options, How to Make and Market Ebooks and Print Books. His website is ewanmitchell.com. Now, uh, I'll spell that out. It is E-U-A-N-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L.com, just in case. Well done, Joel. That is the bane of my life, that spelling. Yes. I've had a much easier first name, but yeah, there you go. Mum chose it, and Ewan. Very common in the UK. It's just a former Celtic yeah. former John, but not out here in Australia. Goodness. It's it name spellings. But talking about names, I just realised that your book, Publishing Options, is a very long title. Well, it is. The subtitle is How to Make and Market Oh, yeah, e-books. the subtitle, yeah. How yeah. to Make and Market eBooks and Print Books. It looks better when you actually see it on you the see cover. It on when the you cover. read it out like that, it says, what? Wait, something options for your... Yeah, it's uh, like how... Oh, you yeah. could do the... Um, the the uh, modern nothing you know the really large text that doesn't yeah. finish the word at the end of the oh, yeah, at the yeah, edge of the book yeah. and then it runs over. Yeah. I had a Marcus Aurelius philosophy book that did that, oh. um, and it just went. Uh, in Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and it just went like Meditations over. by. Ooh. It's a good book. Oh, okay. If you like Stoic philosophy, then Stoic. Yeah, you get your fill of it. Well read, child. Gee, I'm, I'm in esteemed company now. <laughs> are, are we going to? Can we talk about Seneca next, the Roman philosopher? And, Maybe, you know? but then he was. <laughs> was quite wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, you want my you, opinion you on it. You should raise your expectations, yeah. not lower them. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. That's All it. Right. Come philosophy, yeah. Go oh. on to Nietzsche next and I'll be happy. Oh, yeah, that'll, um, be, that'll be interesting. Yeah. But we're not talking philosophy. We're talking about our week mm. right now. But maybe that involves a bit of philosophy. Um, what have you been up to, Dr. Mitchell? Today, getting ready to publish a former student's book in June. And I've been dealing with really exciting things like legal permissions to oh, wow. use the photos in the book. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. 
A lot of fun, uh, but it's necessary, though. We've got to make sure all the um, legal areas covered because uh, when it comes out in June, we don't want anyone saying, hang on, we're not sure if you've got permission for that, so we're you know, checking everything. He's actually done a lot of good work uh, emailing the uh, crowders, the photographers, mm, and just yeah. checking and saying, look, it's a, a twisted uh, picture book for kind of grown-up kids. Are you OK if we subvert your photo a bit? And they sort of scratch their heads a bit and go, oh, yeah, all right, I suppose so. So... <laughs> I wonder if they get a lot of that, though, because of the, like, like where they advertise it. A lot of them are using a Creative Commons license, which is attribution only, which does allow digital modification. But you've got to say that, you know, I'm just sort of reading it today, you've got to say it's There's actually a lot of them, isn't there? It's like uh, oh, uh, label for reuse, label for uh, oh, reuse. Oh, sorry, uh, the licenses. I think the, the licenses, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. looking on Flickr, where we got the, uh, a few of them, oh, okay. there's something like 50 million and counting with attribution only. But there are six Creative Commons licenses and they're all some rights reserved rather than all rights reserved. Mm. And some authors think, oh, well, you know, you've got that option anyway, but this just minimises all the paperwork yeah. and you know exactly where you stand. You just say, right, they're the terms, I can use it or not, or you know what yeah. I can and can't do with it. So that's saving us a lot of time, but we've still got to make sure we do it right. I wonder if yeah, you can that... fudge it as well, like uh, they did with Coca-Cola. What, they copyrighted... They copyrighted uh, Coca, but they didn't... Coke, but they didn't copyright... Cola. Oh. That's why people have cola. Oh, yeah. You're like, you know. They messed up. Yeah, it's like they couldn't. Cola. Yeah. They couldn't. And so that's why you see, like, you know, knockoff cola isn't everywhere. It, that is interesting, isn't it? Because you would think it would be the cola, because coca, yeah. uh, that came from the cocaine. Co- yeah. You would almost imagine that would be, in the southern parts of America, a nickname for cocaine. Hey, you got the coca. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> but uh, not cola, because no. uh, it's the cocoa bean, isn't it? Yep. I've got the right. It's a I believe so. Yeah, it comes from. It's a non-narcotic so. form. It's not a cola bean, anyways. It's not a cola yeah. bean. Cola bean. Well, maybe that's. A, I can't remember, but we're getting into areas here <laughs> beyond, beyond <laughs> my expertise. They do say cola flavored, anyways. Cola. Yeah, you can say like cola flavored drinks. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're saying there's a lot of um, uh, what is it? Reference only. Oh, I've forgotten what the word it was you used now for the attribution. Attribution only. only. Sorry. Attribution only. Um, if if you're using a lot of those, what? How much legal? stuff do you have to do now like what's oh. what are you doing well there, there are things that uh, first you think okay it's just the attribution <laughs> but then you've got to make sure there's a link to the license which is easy enough to do in the ebook uh i'm gonna have to actually spell out so, you know i should be able to put a few of the licenses under one heading you know the attribution only creative commons license 4.0 international <laughs> all this, so this is off the top of my head you ask me what i've been doing today yeah exciting isn't it um <laughs> And uh, just getting all those things right, and they're the sorts of things a publisher does to make sure the author's rights are protected and uh, that my ass is covered too. I don't want to lose the house. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And uh, that's why it's in the wife's name. <laughs> <laughs> Handy. Well, you know, we actually knew that um, when we got married. I said, look, you know, uh, I was working in writing mm. and working in publishing at the time, and I said, uh, there is a bit of defamation running in the family. Uh, my t- dad was sued twice for defamation. Uh, one successfully, one it was a kind of draw. And I said, look, I think it would be safer if we put the house in your name. And I hadn't actually thought about the radio stuff. And over the last couple of decades of earning my living as a writer, I've also ended up on radio a few times. And I'm very aware, one sentence, the house could go. All you've got to do is say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you can get hauled into court and um, held to account for what you said. 
Mm. Talking about being held to account of what you said. All right, here we go. All right, Dr. Mitchell, <laughs> uh, time to get into ambush. it. Ambush, yeah, all right, go ahead. By the way, in case for the for the listeners... Well, that was a dream. In case for the listeners, um, this is still the casual conversation part, so I'm not going to ambush you too much. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but uh, Digital Writers Festival, yep. you did a talk, um, Crafting a Killer First Chapter. I believe it's up on YouTube, so if you want to Google that, you could probably find mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, it's it's worth a, worth a watch, definitely. Oh, well, and you get to see Dr. Mitchell in um, visual form. This is all audio, obviously. And but you need to mention the other three people on it. Too. Definitely. We me. have um, the senior ed- editor at Text Publishing, which yep. was Jane Pearson. Yep. Um, and Paul Collins, who is a fantasy and science fiction writer and publisher, I believe. He, is, he runs a fantastic company called Ford Street Publishing, which is just down the road from here where we are in Fitzroy with a tram running along outside in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And he has started from scratch. He was a Penguin author, a speculative fiction author. And he has published just, I don't know how many books now are on his list. It's a long list. I think it would be, you know, hundreds. Some pretty notable authors on that list. Yeah. And um, he's very generous with his uh, advice and very candid too. Mm. Some of the things he did on that webinar that you're talking about with Mm. uh, the Digital Writers Festival. He Mm. came with a list, for instance, of about 10 hooks that you can put at the start of books. Now, that is worth, mm. you know, never mind what I say, just go and have a listen to what a lot uh, of gold. Yeah. Paul Collins yeah. says uh, on that about, uh, and he's got a list there. And we're saying, oh, right, okay. Yeah, right, physical list. Quietly, I went home and actually, it, yeah. you know, sort of wrote an awards, you know. The, <laughs> it took some notes. Uh, yeah. And thought, yeah, that's a, one of the yeah. best lists I've ever seen of hooks. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you've seen that. I didn't realise that was, yeah, it, it in was February. We just passed. We just did that, yeah. The, uh, the actual Digital Writers Festival is actually quite a uh, enjoyable watch. So even if you've missed it, you could probably go have a look at the archives and you could probably find a lot. Now, oh, yeah. there is a specific thing that you said there. Oh. And... Here's the catch. Here's the catch. Yeah. Here's the catch. Um, but it, it's it's more of like I, wanna, uh, I want a, to understand your opinion a bit clearer. Yeah, okay. Now, you said uh, they were talking about... Um, it's a bit like the actual subject matter, uh, crafting a killer first chapter, and they talk about uh, that first sentence... Um, in your first chapter. Um, And uh, they moved on a bit to that, and then it went to, like, you know, how do you structure it? How do you keep your audience engaged in that chapter? Now, I'm actually not sure how the subject approached, but it went to structure a little bit. Um, And uh, you say, uh, and this is pretty much a direct quote, uh, it says that it is important to set up the normal world uh, and that's basic. Uh, this is yeah. me now ex- yeah. explaining what you just said. Yeah. Uh, is what, what that, no, 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 no contradiction so far. Yeah, is but, a normal but, world and there's, there's a an... special world. And so you mm. set up the normal world, which is thrown out of balance, comma, mm. uh, reason uh, for the hero or heroine mm. uh, to commit to the journey mm. in Act 2. Yep. Um, now, when you said Act 2, there's a bit of... Uh, looks given. I'm not trying to make a, an issue where there is none, but it was just a, a bit of an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think uh, um, Jane uh, Jane Pearson uh, said that generally speaking, they don't. You know, she she believes that a story should tell itself. You, you shouldn't really plan it out. And Paul says here um, that he'd use it uh, with fantasy, but he's not sure about other stuff. Um. Ironically, at the time, it was Jane Pearson from Text Publishing who was saying, oh, no, it doesn't have to be that way. And I wanted to say it, but I had to hold my fire, and I will say it now. 
The best-selling novel at Text Publishing is one of the classic uses of the three-act structure. It is called The Rosie Project. And the author, Graham Simpson, has now become Bill Gates' best friend because they've both got Asperger's. That's nothing defamatory. That's uh, a difference, not a disability. Mm. And Graham was flown over to Bill by Bill Gates for dinner to have a chat about the book. It, I might tell you what the uh, overseas rights were sold for, but we're talking seven figures, well under the yeah. seven figures. Yeah. And uh, Graham... And if you understand, as someone with Asperger's, it's all about structure. And he started a screenwriter's course there, was very aware of the three-act model. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of you not aware of the uh, details of the three-act model, you might be saying, oh, what's that beginning, middle, and an end? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot more than that. (laughs) It's more than that, yeah. And when you see the way it works, um, and you will have seen it in so many movies, read it in so many novels... Uh, it's not something invented invented by Hollywood. It's used by Hollywood all the time. Mm. But Homer is the first person, the, the, the great uh, writer from thousands of years ago when he uh, wrote the Iliad and then more particularly the Odyssey yeah. when mm. uh, Odysseus or Ulysses, depending if you've got the Greek or Roman version, uh, spends 10 years going back to Ithaca. And that journey back home for Western literature, that's where it was really nailed. Mm. And going a little bit uh, further ahead from... Homer, but still at two and a half, oh, sorry, 500 BC, two and a half thousand years ago. It's probably about 350, I think. Aristotle was saying, well, the structure that Homer uses, I admit, is more popular with the <laughs> you know, Even the, then. The, the vulgar taste of the common people, and he's trotted out all the time, and he's, but. He considers the form of tragedy, which is still a three-act model, but it is not so much the hero's Mm. journey as the anti-hero's journey. So it's the model, for instance, of Macbeth. Macbeth, you know, people say, oh, hang on, but that's where you fall down. That's uh, five acts. Well, really, the second act is the big long part, and that's often broken up into a beginning, middle, and end as Mm. well. So if you're wondering, well, you know, how do these three-act models work when you've got five acts, that's pretty much it. Mm. So there's a big irony being told by a senior editor text, oh, no, you don't have to do it that way. But um, when you come to understand the model, it almost spoils yeah. your enjoyment of watching a movie because you go, Yeah, exactly, you can pick it. There's the on-page <laughs> moment of decisiveness and we've yeah. just gone into the second act, the first act turned mm-hmm. into the and second act, what's going, going into the there. new yeah. world. So, I mean, uh, you, you mentioned special world. I, was, I actually would tend to call it the new yeah. world. Yeah. And you might come back to the changed normal world or a new, another new world yep. at the end. You know, like in Chicken Run, they go to the utopia for chickens, yeah. a totally new world. Um, but often you just come back to that new world and things have changed. Like Shrek, he comes back to his swamp, but it's different. But it's different. Yep. He's got the car it's and the girl. The car world. just happens to be an onion coach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Luke, what's your thoughts on that? Like the structure. Now, we've had conversations oh about uh, this. Yes. Um, um, well, I can't argue with um, the Odyssey and the Iliad, of course, but... Um... Good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my thought. trying to make it harder. I thought <laughs> I was going to be ambushed in a bigger way, so perhaps I was being a bit over-defensive. Yeah. <laughs> trying to justify um, it. <laughs> when, when you're mentioning structure in that way, I've... I've um, I don't... For myself, when I'm writing, I don't like the idea of planning it and structuring it before oh, you get in. Absolutely. I'm just... just Conversationally, what would you do if, like, do you always would you structure yours from okay. the start? Okay, or? There, there, there's 
Two points here. Um, one is that the three-act model, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily what you write from and you mm-hmm. don't necessarily yeah, plan it out. Plan to it. Yeah. It's a diagnostic tool. Yeah. Uh, you get stuck or you're doing, after you burst through with your first <laughs> up, you go back and you start reorganising. Yeah. So first point, don't think you need to know this three-act model to draft the book. Yep. Um, second point is there are planners... And there are what are now often called pantsers, people who pantsers. fly by the seat of their yeah. pants. So they improvise the pants, yeah. and make it up on the spot. Now, a few years back, I watched John Marsden, who's uh, one of Australia's great young adult, adult authors and teachers, doing a session at the Q Library mm-hmm. with another author. Now, I, I won't mention her name, but she was big on planning. And she went right through, and it was a, a fairly young audience mm-hmm. there, including me, um, <laughs> And she explained the all the virtues of planning. You know, like Dickens was a big plan, yeah. you know, huge plans. Uh, Gregory David Roberts, who's about to do a sequel to Shantaram, big planner. So this is not putting down planners at all. But mm. when she finished her spiel on planning, <laughs> John just shook his head and said, oh, that is wrong on so many levels. <laughs> okay, so from his point of view, yeah. you're getting into that heat of the moment. Yeah. And it will unfold on that inner screen in your mind. You've got the voices of the characters in your head and yep. it's this wonderful process. Mm-hmm. It, the, it's the thing that makes writing so addictive. Yep. Uh, so, uh, Luke, in terms of your drafting, I wouldn't mm-hmm. sort of say, oh, I've got to follow something like it's a, you know, join the dots kind of thing. Or the other danger, people think it's a formula. Yep. The first thing people say, ah, oh, yeah, that's just a formula. Formulaic writing. And, you know, you shouldn't yep. go to formula. Okay, no, it's not. It's a framework. And it, people say, oh, okay, that's just a semantic mm. difference. No, it's not. It still sounds like a formula when you put it that way, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one of the things I used to do is, uh, you may remember, having studied with me, yep. and um, get people to watch Shrek, and then either read or watch uh, The Da Vinci Code, da Vinci Code yep. and they realise, actually, it's the same framework used for both. Mm-hmm. One's a kid's animation, and one's an adult thriller uh, story mm-hmm. and they both use it and even for instance between the second and the third act after the world's come crumbling down from when everything is looking good at the second act climax it's all got to fall in a heap uh, some people call it the uh, the low point it can be called the black moment that's what uh, Joseph Campbell mm, used to call yeah. it but then you take time out for a plan or a self-worth an exposition scene I know this sounds a bit sort of convoluted to some listeners. Uh, that's actually what happens. Yeah. You think about in Shrek, you know, Hallelujah, Hallelujah starts to play. The whole song plays out and he's it's thinking. Time out, pacing come up with and, a plan. Yeah. Uh, in the Da Vinci Code, you even have a time put to it <laughs> while the computer, everything looks lost. But mm. at the library somewhere in London, the computer has got to go through a terabyte of data. Yeah. And the librarian says, can I make you a copy? This will take 15 minutes. And bang, there it is, the time out. It's actually given <laughs> yeah. a length of time. Now, that's just one. So people say, oh, is that, is that all you do? No, no, that's just one. There are all these different things. So it's a do. bit like the wilderness experience then, putting it like that. It's oh, hang like on, when... wilderness experience. Huh? You're throwing me with that. What, what do you mean so, by the wilderness experience? So uh, when a character has... Um, yeah. Oh, the self-worth, evaluation. Yes, it's, it's a bit okay. Joseph Could Campbelly, uh, yeah. a bit more. Um, but it's, it's but a... Not just the road of trials. No, no? it's mm. just that moment of self-reflection um, and yep. where do I go from here? And yep. often you have that in a lot of... And, and an important thing to add is you don't just have to do it at the, the low mind yep. before yep. the third act climax, mm-hmm. the end of the second act. It can be, And often uh, near the midpoint, it's often a good place to do it. Yeah. Um, yep. 
So that was as well. that that was a bit more of a, a technical conversation, but a conversation mm-hmm. anyway. Um, so it wasn't an ambush. You have to give me credit. Wasn't well, no, it? actually, you, you surprised me, though, because I thought you were going to ask me about the empathy thing because afterwards I was asked to write a blog on empathy yeah. and I, I used Breaking that, yeah. Bad to illustrate it. They've, that is such a wonderfully written piece of TV mm. and that opening sequence puts the three main techniques together that writers use to create empathy yeah. for the protagonist in their story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that can be viewed on... Oh, well, just ewanmitchell.com, as Ewan long as you can spell Ewan, E-U-A-N, and not like Ewan McGregor, <laughs> Is there E-W-A-N. actually a, another Ewan Mitchell? Um, oh, there's over 40 on Facebook. No, with ewanmitchell.com spelled with the W. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. no uh, well, there probably is somewhere with the, the W, but the E-U-A-N Mitchell.com, uh, there's only yeah. one of them, and it was a bun fight with the other Ewan's Mitchell. <laughs> you know, there's actually, you know, it's a common name there's in the There's no UK. brotherhood there. So I ended up having to buy it from the Russian mafia in St. Petersburg, and I'm not kidding about that. <laughs> I had to buy it in Euros and get a British broker. So it was a bun fight to get it. There you go. The dark side of the writing. You got the cons. Mm. But I've met some of the other Ewan Mitchells, and uh, particularly the one who's a musician in Leeds writing soul music in uh, the UK. He's a great guy. uh, uh, But I think he liked me because the Australasian Performing Writer Association, where I've got a couple of songs I've written, registered, said, oh, are you the Ewan Mitchell that wrote, you know, this song? Because we've got a lot of royalties for you. But I did the right thing. You didn't say knew, yes. Okay, okay, this is going to be the Ewan Mitchell in the UK. Interestingly enough. <laughs> so we became friends. Though you that. were in the music industry. Um, oh, yeah, originally. Yeah. Which was the subject of your book, uh, Making Noises. Yep, that's right. Um, oh, you have research as well. Uh, I've read it. Oh. <laughs> it was a very good book, Dr. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, and some of the themes that you explored in that book um, probably came from personal experience, or am oh, I reading yeah, too much absolutely. into that? Oh, no, no, Absolutely. Uh, can I just tell you the simple scenario it built from? The, you're right about having a background in the music industry, but I got to a point where the choice came down to, ooh, the band's fallen apart again. Perhaps I should go back and get a diploma in education so I can teach, teach. music. Yeah. And ended up getting a job for a music education publisher. So that was my intro into publishing. Mm. And th- this will sound as I've made this up, but... They wanted to test their music education, workbooks and videos, mm-hmm. in juvenile prison, specifically Tarana Boys Prison here in Melbourne mm-hmm. and also Malmesbury Youth uh, Training Centre just up above Melbourne. Interesting. Hmm. And uh, that, that, it was my baby. I was the sort of, you know, publishing director, I suppose you'd call it. And, um, and the researcher. And yeah, the and researcher and writer. And <laughs> gradually the sort of staff built up. And I had, you know, an editorial assistant and a marketing guy and a design and layout guy. And it all sort of built up. And uh, business became, uh, you know, well, boom, really. And we were exporting it overseas and uh, very pleased with the whole thing. But the key was we tested it out in prisons, uh, juvenile prisons. And we would go into Tirana Boys Prison, and one time we went in there, uh, I went with uh, Sean Kelly, not the one from The Models, but the one from Tism, and uh, a drummer that we hired, I'm ashamed, I can't remember his name, but we did just hire a drummer for <laughs> a three-piece. <laughs> went and played at Tirana, but we actually invited the boys up on stage, because everyone wanted to be a drummer. I don't know what it is about drummers and juvenile prison, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, so we did that. But then this shy Aboriginal kid was sort of pushed forward. And, you know, all these mates in the prison say, ah, come on. And I'm going to call him Billy. His name wasn't that, but I'm going to protect his identity. That's the name in the novel. Yeah. 
And when Billy finally was persuaded to pluck his guitar and sing, it was like watching a young Paul Kelly mm. play. Just the talent, the voice. And Sean and I, and the drummer, just sort of went, oh, geez. And we knew we were watching this, you know, I don't like to use this word too much, but what is it? It was a magic moment. Mm. And this 15, 16-year-old Aboriginal kid, he was in for some, I say a stupid crime. Yeah. Not, not a really bad crime of violence or anything. I think he'd just you know, stolen too many cars or something like mm, that. You yeah, know. Yeah. Anyway, so there he was in prison. And, and unfortunately, two Aboriginals uh, uh, overrepresented in prison. And that's one of the mm. things you know, we wanted to change. And, um, and we, we did for you know, all the inmates, try and teach them generic skills, learning skills with the sugar coating of, well, music. And here we were doing performance, but we did things like setting up PA systems. So you know, some of them might have turned into roadies, so if you ever do get a band together, Joel, you better watch your back in case they were trained in Tirana Boys Prison. <laughs> um, but when I came to writing a book years later based on that experience, mm. a friend of mine said, one of your boss who was connected to the Prime Minister of Australia and very well connected to the music industry, what if your boss made Billy a star? And that what if, that was a spark, the ah, story right. of a new story, okay. and that was it. And I knew so that's where the fiction and the, and the real yep, life came yep. in. So right. it didn't happen, but it oh, could have happened. Yeah. Right. And I'll just say this about the company, uh, the music education publisher, they did organise Yothu Yindi's first tour. Wow. And I have all sorts of other things I could go into in promoting Indigenous mm, music in yeah. the same building that I worked in. Uh, an offshoot was Songlines Aboriginal Corporation, Music Corporation as well. So mm. it, it was more than sort of lip service of what we did to try and uh, bring a focus. And if you remember, that was the era era of treaty and Archie Roach yep. took the children away. I'm not trying to take credit for them, but we <laughs> were, uh, Mushroom Music has to be given a lot of the credit yep. for... Uh, what was done then. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're working pretty closely with Mushroom Music and they gave a, a lot of uh, free permission to use their clips in our videos for um, our listeners, our viewers mm. and, and students. But so the book was based on that. It was a really amazing company. And I, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but it was set up by the Prime Minister to boost his youth vote yeah. because the Labor Party didn't really have any ideas about how to get the youth vote other than set up more sporting stadiums or more gymnasiums. Yep. It's like, why don't we get into sort of music a bit? The first venture there was Rock the Royals, 1985, in excess, playing for Chuck and Di, yep. Prince Charles and Lady Diana, or Princess Diana. Um, and that was where it sort of started and it built into this Got the ball uh, Oz music. It was about mm -hmm. promoting music uh, originally, but then they said, you know what, we need to uh, update music education in this country. We're going to publish all these materials. And I was lucky enough to get the job. Interesting. That was my intro to publishing. Yeah, I hate, hate to cut you short, but uh, I would like to hear some more quotes from that uh, movie you mentioned before the, the show. So let's go on to movies and oh, TV okay. shows that we, we've watched this week. Oh, we mentioned Off Air. Oh, yes, yes, Off yeah. Air, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. I watched it for the first time this week. Mm -hmm. At home with my younger son. He said it was one of the best movies he's ever seen. I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but it was fantastic. I love the it's raccoon. It's pretty good. Yeah, the raccoon yeah. was great. <laughs> But my, my favourite line's got to be... What, what was the big guy's name in the bald head? Uh, I can't remember Drax. His name. Drax the Destroyer. Drax the Destroyer. Okay. Iconic. When he said, no metaphor goes over my head, my reflexes are too fast, or words that. I'll effect. just that catch it. Yep. Uh, you know, I love that line. That's uh, great. But, uh, oh, look, that was a you know, clear three-act model, if we're going to go back to the three-act model. And there were some things that were just like, uh, you can... 
and it, it's a big thing like um it's interesting and i'm glad we're finally talking about this because i wanted to talk about superhero movies for a while now um <laughs> they're a big thing uh, they're definitely a huge part of the film industry now is yeah, devoted yeah. to that and it's raking in money mm. um it's free money almost mm. because um and now that spider-man i believe has reverted its license back to uh marvel uh, Marvel is able to now incorporate them into mm. their universe. Okay. So yes. more money is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, so but they they, they're control. doing them really well, though. The yeah. dark backstories, making them three-dimensional characters yeah. and the, the villains as well. For the most well. part. Mm. For the most well, part. Yeah, I've got to say, it's not always working. But yeah. uh, mm. uh, I've got a son who reviews computer games and gets very involved in... Um, the, the movies. He's a walking encyclopedia of um, <laughs> Marvel and DC yeah. and whatever. And um, it's uh, I, I'm just amazed at uh, how good. I mean, from the the Batman that I used to watch on TV, the campy Adam West thing. Yes, compared yes, to I remember that. Batman it was, Begins. It's you know, it's it's a, a completely world different world. Yeah. yeah, but funny enough, I think I was having this conversation actually today about Batman Begins, which is interesting. Um, and we were saying that Batman Begins went back to the origins. Mm. of what Batman started out for mm. a, I think it was the 1994 TV animated series. Mm-hmm. Um, for a kid's show, it's mm. pretty dark. Um, <laughs> and going back and seeing it, you wondered like, hmm, the classification board must have been a little lax then. Um, yeah. Well, kids are getting corrupted pretty early now. I accidentally took my 11-year-old or my son when he was 11 <laughs> to see Ted. Oh, that wasn't a good idea. Was that a mistake? I feel uh, like it could have been. You know the scene with the four hookers on the couch nah. and the bear with the bong and <laughs> what's on the floor? And then yeah. you start considering. At that point, I'm looking at him. He's got a grin from here to here. Ah, this is what else. No, but look, it's it's good storytelling. Mm. And um, some viewers will get it at different levels. So younger viewers may not get it uh, to the full depth that older viewers do. But it is so much more interesting. Well, I've got to admit... Uh, I miss the big kapows that used to come up on the screen in Adam West's Batman. <laughs> Bam, yes, pow. pow. Yeah. Owner made writ large. There was one particular scene I remember from that was when he's carrying a bomb for, I think, five minutes. And the water <laughs> is parallel to him throughout the entire run. Oh, right. And he yeah. runs to a specific point and he yeah. throws it in there. That yeah. was a point I realized that I loved Batman. But um, <laughs> uh, talking about going back to Guidance of the Galaxy... Hmm film did something really smart um it it uh it um tugged on your emotional heartstrings from a retro point of view the kind of cues that they were giving the The kevin bacon reference yeah uh, the sony walkman oh the sony walkman did it for me i was like done this film is mine like this is very well done and he definitely understood the audience and looking at the director and looking at his films it seems like Odd uh, to see where he. I think it's it's a James Gunn. I think I, think no, I, I can't remember Gunn, actually. Yeah. Uh, is the director, um, but he did a fantastic job. Knocked it out of the park, and I am sure uh, the sequel is going to make a bucket load of money because those <laughs> things often do. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, but Luke, superhero movies. Are you into them? Uh, not really, actually. Why is it? Just I like Asterix, he... but he doesn't really count, does he? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe in France, and he's kind of old now, so they don't really have a lot of movies about him. The yeah. real life one didn't count. You didn't like him? Nah. That was the one the with, the, with Gerard Depardieu, wasn't it? As Oblix. Yeah. Uh, they did a few of them. Maybe. Yeah. Quite silly. I read a lot of the comic books growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the right. comic books were great. And, but um, other than that, so well, not big. Tintin, but 
but that's not, again, that's not superhero, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's my reporter. So do you think it's, do you think you're just like not interested in the subject matter or you just haven't given it a go? Uh, if you want to get into oh, my superhero side, I like Iron Man. Right. I don't nice like fix. the sort of, well, I mean, Batman the, is more the technological as well, but you don't I like don't the like the supernatural. Uh, the supernatural right. In the modern setting, very much. I'm not big on modern setting, anyways. But, but um, Iron Man, his whole gadgets everywhere. That one, man, that was that was me bought. Mm. <laughs> All yeah, of computers yeah, and like his old holographic interfaces. Oh, <laughs> the Minority reports. Um, All is different. Talking to the computer, and that yep. that was something that I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, he's so intense. So yeah, if I'm if I'm into um, superheroes, it's definitely Iron Man. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, a bit of oral competition. <laughs> yeah, we have a bit of competition on that. Um, with with actually what they did with Iron Man, it was interesting because uh, they they didn't shy away from the supernatural. You talked about that for a bit, um, and uh, they decided to incorporate that with Thor. I think Thor was the first time that they brought in all that sort of um, uh, mechanizing religion uh, in in that <laughs> and like creating them to be in. Uh, gods, but gods in our perception in that way. So in a way, you could say it's supernatural, but you could probably find some sort of scientific reason for that um, okay, within I'm, the universe. I've gotten into Thor a little bit recently. I didn't like the old comic ones. Thor is in comics or Thor is in mythology? Yeah, the, the mythology and the modern <laughs> okay. takes on the mythology. I'm not, I, I like the, the newer Thor movies where okay. they actually go into the Norse sort of... Well, yeah. I'm sure it's quite Hollywoodized, but the Norse sort of culture it's and heaven and... Um, and yeah. different bits and pieces there, and then, and then put him on Earth, as opposed to like having this. I, I haven't read the f- comics. I just know that there's very crazy looking pictures of them. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that wouldn't that didn't take me as soon as I saw the comic books there. But um, yeah, definitely uh, the music and the setting for the, like the um, Asgard and everything. Yeah, yeah, they definitely that. went right into it as well. Yeah. And I think by going whole hog, I think they did it a service as well. Yeah. Um, also, a quick. A quick note to our listeners. We are doing this live, so in case you hear any back chatter or anything in the background, then it's all just, uh, it's all live. Yeah, it's, it's all real. real. Um, and the trams are pretty soft, but you could... You People might. wandering in with their mobile phones. <laughs> all that, <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, moving on from the movie discussion, if you guys have not mm. seen anything or anything that you've talked about. Oh, no, no. I'm chomping in the bit to talk about digital publishing. Let's get right on to it then. Okay. Um, so I asked Dr. Mitchell to come on uh, primarily because uh, of his good looks, but not just that. Uh, let's oh, face you're it, such a charmer job. That's that's the main. But the side <laughs> facet is that um, ebook publishing, uh, and that's something that you've done quite a lot, uh, especially in your book, Publishing Options, which is something that you released, um, which I read in the bio. Um, talk a bit about that, and talk about. What do you think about e-publishing? Now, that's a gigantic okay. question. I'm going to start with the money side of things because that's where a lot of tabloid newspapers start, either the money or who's sleeping with whom. But in this case, we'll just stick with the money. Yep. <laughs> um, 70 or 80% royalties for e-books as opposed to 10% for the print version. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of published authors are thinking, yeah, I might just put out an e-book version of that myself. The second part is editorial control. So I'm not just talking about any old author who's struggling, but you know the likes of Pulitzer Prize winner David Mamet in right. New York. And, uh, well, you know, yes, it's partly the royalties, but I think for a writer like... 
David Mamet, it would be more the editorial control. That, that's uh, not to suggest that publishers have too much or do something wrong, but sometimes you just want to put it out how you want to uh, write it. <laughs> you don't want the someone to have else. the last word. Yeah, yeah. And, um, having, look, you know, some publishers can make a book. They really can. They and I've seen authors like James McBride, uh, this is going back a little bit, but I still remember him very uh, clearly saying, without my publisher, and in particular the uh, structural editor, the acquisitions editor, I think he called him, uh, this book wouldn't have been out or half the book what it was. Yeah. And he felt very humbled that he could just put his name on the cover and not the editor's mm-hmm. as well. So uh, don't get me wrong, but you will also hear a lot of complaints from authors about Changes that have been made that they still <laughs> they still rankle and still you know very salty about and so if you're in that position and you just want something the way you want it mm-hmm. um, and and I really do say that you know I'm a publisher I'm also an editor and I'm also an author yeah and I would say sometimes I've worked that writers actually have to be saved from themselves and it's like look there's a great work in here but you've just got to do this and we'll. The editorial and, sort of yeah. conversation back and, and forth. Um, yeah, that brings up a question yeah. I had. Would you say that that means that e-publishing could be flooding the market with really bad writing or possibly potentially bad oh, writing? Yeah, of course it could. Of course like it could. Over flooding? Uh, you mean it already <laughs> has? <coughs> well, yeah, well. Could, yeah. But in another way, you might say, and there were no bad books published before. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so and it's, it's increased the accessibility. Yeah. It's democratised publishing in a way. Mm. But the filters will still be there. The reviewers will still be there. Oh, um, yes. And it, but it gives people a chance who don't necessarily fit that mould and don't get a start yeah. through the traditional gatekeepers. They can t- take it to a second jury, if you like, yeah. the Court of Appeal. And it may take off the public. There. And yep. we're talking about books like Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm not going to... You know, as soon as I say that, people will you know, be very opinionated. So oh, I don't like it. I do like it all that, but it's just say it sold a lot it of copies, and it was only an ebook to begin with. It was a yep. blog to begin with. The Writers' Coffee Shop in Sydney, which was nothing more than a PO box in Hornsby in Sydney, mm-hmm. put it out an ebook, a few print-on-demand copies as well. But then it just took Blew off, up. and when the big international publishers came around and bought the rights from the Writers' Coffee Shop, well. Oh, the owner was on the front page of the coffee, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. well, actually, the owner said, we might actually be able to set up a real coffee shop now because it don't exist. It just is not using instant coffee now. Yeah. yeah. And I'll actually jump in on that because, mm. all right, here's, it may seem like an aggressive question, mm. but uh, yeah. does... does <laughs> do you own the house or does your parent? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So the question is, does popular fiction dominate the ebook? Um, market, does literary fiction get the backseat? Oh, yeah, or might. does it even suit? Mm. But it might in a, uh, a general marketplace as it is because yeah. literary fiction tends to need to win awards to sell books. I mean, yeah. I just read a wonderful uh, book that won the Booker Prize, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, Richard Flanagan, and to be perfectly blunt, I wouldn't have read it if it hadn't got the publicity through the award. Mm-hmm. And um, it was mm. absolutely extraordinary. Uh, it was wonderful. Um, but, yeah, I've been pitched every day um, so many books on BookBub, uh, mainly popular fiction, and so much genre fiction's coming out. But I kind of take the approach that, yeah, something will come through and um, <laughs> perhaps something that didn't get a look in. And I did want to sort of mention a, a friend of mine's book, Tori de Roche, 
She was someone who couldn't get a look in. She's a young Melbourne woman. She was living just a couple of suburbs from here in Adelaide in a rented house, obsessively working on a book called Swept. It mm-hmm. did have a subtitle called Love with a Chance of Drowning. Now, Swept came out in September 2011. No, so self ebook published. Yeah. Well, yeah, ebook yep. supported by a create space mm-hmm. print on demand copy. Now, what I've done, listeners, is just hand that create space print on demand copy to Joel. Yeah, which I'm now flicking which through. Which I know you can't see. You can actually Google it if you want. Swept, Love of the Chance of Drowning, Tori DeRoche. But just to provoke a few comments from Luke and um, Joel to say, well, this is what she put out in September. Now, I kid you not, by November that same year, 2011, she had a Hollywood movie deal with Seismic Pictures. She had a publishing deal with Hyperion, one of the biggest publishers in North America, Summersdale in the UK, and Penguin bought the Australian-New Zealand rights at auction. Not bad for three months. That's, it was actually yeah. sewed up in two that's months. That's impressive. Extremely yeah. impressive yeah. for someone who... This is her first book, right? Yeah. It was her first Debut first novel. Book. Debut novel, and the reason wow. I got involved is because no one was interested in it. She pitched it to agents here and in America and publishers in Australia, no one wanted to touch it. So she went to the Court of Appeals. She went online and she put excerpts on travel blogs and things like that. People started saying, actually, this is really well written. It's really good. Yeah. And independently, Summersdale Publishing and Hyperion asked for full copies because they wanted to read more. And she thought, oh, really? You want me to send you? Anyway, she did. And it led to what I just explained. Now, they then took the book off the market. So you can only buy secondhand copies of this. And what you're holding there is probably worth a couple of thousand dollars Mm -hmm. because it's signed by Tori as a thank you to me. Wow. And uh, it came out in March 2013 in Australia. It was called Love with a Chance of Drowning. So they got rid of the title Swept and just kept the subtitle. Released in, I think, May in London of 2013. And I think it was June in 2013 released in New York. Not bad for a girl who no one wanted to know um, in 2010, living in a rented house in uh, Abbotsford. Hoping to provoke comment there, Joel and Luke. (laughs) I'm delving into this book. Excuse (laughs) me, audience. It's wonderfully written. I I forgot to explain to everyone. It is a story of Tori and her boyfriend, so real life. Sailing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, base. It's um, on the back. You'll see it's memoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's really well structured, like a novel. And she mm. sailed across the Pacific from L.A. to Melbourne. And that's the story. She did this in her mid-20s. She started writing this in her late 20s. She's in her early 30s now and has done very well out of the book. Well, well you've certainly gotten one comment out of me. Um, does that mean we <laughs> should... Um, Chuck excerpts of all our books on, on different yeah, blogs. Oh, absolutely. And if Tori were here now, she would just go into a whole spiel about, oh, yeah, you know, uh, joining those groups, those forums, getting your work out there, discussing it, and finding people who become champions for your work and introduce it to other people. And um, was it that uh, movie Begin Again about the people who make the album in Manhattan? And at the end, uh, the record company is saying, well, we'll give you 10% of the um, the price. And he says, you know what, I think I'll just put it out in iTunes myself and goes to the <laughs> rapper guy who owes her partner mm. a bit of a favour. And uh, he puts it out in Twitter and someone says, how many people are following him on Twitter? They said, oh, 7 billion people, everyone on the planet. No, that obviously wasn't true. But, you know, it's the idea that, you know, that type of social media power, mm. and that's what happened, you know, going back to Fifty Shades of Grey, Love mm-hmm. of the Chance of Drowning, it got this buzz going online, and then it translated into the broader 
industry. And I think for new riders coming up, that's an exciting prospect. It doesn't mean it's going to happen to you, but it gives you that chance. And it's another way into the industry. And um, there's some really exciting stuff coming through that wouldn't necessarily get a look in otherwise. Mm. Well, we've got a couple of minutes, but I want to get a question in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, Luke, if you have any final questions about it as well, love to hear uh, it. Yeah, I've got a few questions. Yep. Um, so the question I'm interested in, in is quality control. Now, we talked about mm-hmm. a lot of bad books being published, and I was a bit glib about that. But mm-hmm. um, uh, with editing in particular editing like uh, the amount of uh work that goes into a first draft mm. is a lot obviously but the amount of work that goes into the rewriting is almost double that oh yeah in my experience anyway which is limited absolutely but um dr mitchell like what is what is that editing process like if you're just doing a digital publishing like who's the who's the man with the stamp yeah you're an ex- old woman uh old you're woman. exactly right because uh, most uh, editors are women and uh, very talented women that is one of the biggest problems self-published ebooks poor editing mm. second big problem poor covers and you probably think yeah but shouldn't judge by book by oh they cover. do but they yep, do that's why you need a proverb to tell people not to do that but it's very very important so editing yeah it's um too many people neglect it think oh i've done a proofread that's enough to write a second draft, you've got to go mm. back and restructure it and rewrite yeah. it, not just a bit of a proofread and what have you. So, but those books, well, you know, that usually will what uh, what will happen a little irritate readers and think, you know, this is really sloppily edited, and um, they need to go back and have another look. So, it's a very good point to bring mm-hmm. up. Um, I kind of want to pitch, not really my book, but I want to pitch the way that I did my book to you. So I, I contracted an artist. This, okay. is, this is the ebook that I published. Um, contracted my artist. And I know you've seen the, the cover. Do you think that... Oh, wonderful covers. They were great. Yep. Yeah. Oh, very impressed when I saw them. Yeah. Very mm. professional. And that's the thing that you, as a writer living out wherever, as long as you're connected to the internet, I get most of my covers done now, you'll think this is a bit ridiculous, mm-hmm. in Kentucky, USA. And <laughs> don't probably ask me why, but it was... Done, well, yeah. Actually, I, I, I will tell you why. The Book Designer. If you go to The Book Designer, and I don't know if it's thebookdesigner.com, but just Google him. Okay. Joel Friedlander, I think his name is, but he does monthly ebook awards yep. of the covers. And you can go through and see the ones you like, and you go, bang, gee, I love that cover. You find out who the designer is. I'm next in Kentucky, from mm. Melbourne to Kentucky and back again. Mm. So you're, you've also had great luck with an artist there, a real professional, but you can access um, uh, his artwork from uh, here, and uh, mm. usually at a reasonable price. Yeah, so um, with that, you've got to pick a good um, cover for your book, obviously. But I remember when we were in in class, you mentioned for paperbacks, you would go for a white cover or something white because usually there's a lot of dark covers now. Mm. What about for ebooks? Okay, because it well, is very different yeah, as well. Because you're looking—it's yeah. on a white page. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I, I would say rather than white, light, light colours. Light. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a thing about oh, I don't make the books too dark, too black. And as I'm sitting here looking around the bookstore, I can see a couple of uh, dark covers. So that is still a generalisation, and there are some you know notable exceptions to that. But that's advice coming from professional book distributors: don't mm. make it too dark. Now, what was the next part of the question? Uh, the next part, the next part uh, of that, that piece that, yeah, um, about covers, about covers. Oh, um, oh the, the, the actual like e-book. ebook. Because it's that's yeah, e-book. because that's it's online. E-book. Yeah. You got to make the elements really obvious. Yep. Mm. So you can't have a really small title or the subtitle too small, or even the author's name too small. Yep. Small. 
not too much detail in it that can't be picked up mm. uh, when you see it as a thumbnail. When you're reading it on a so ta- mobile important. phone or something. <laughs> it's, it's a real art to doing it well. Uh, I'm just looking at this cover of Love of the Chance of Drowning if someone wants to Google it. It's got a lot of detail, but boy, how is that title on the cover? That would be hard to miss even in a <laughs> thumbnail. It takes ooh, 60 70% of the front yeah. cover. But it's the name's not, quite small. Yeah, the name's quite, quite small because Tori's a uh, first-time author. Mm-hmm. But I saw that uh, I worked for Reed Publishing. Mm-hmm. They had a little author called Bryce Courtney who had become <laughs> Australia's best-selling author. Yep. And I have a copy from the company of the first edition of uh, The Power of One. Mm-hmm. And looking at Tori's cover now, I reckon The Power of One proportionally was as big in 1989 uh, and down the bottom, there's a little Bryce Courtney. But I will say this: that's, by the end of 1989, that's changed. Bryce Courtney <laughs> yeah, was 70%, yeah. and the power of one was down the bottom. And I, it's, I still keep those two copies and saying, you know, the power and a name, power of one, and what can happen within a year. So that's the first edition there, and um, that may be repackaged down the track. Yeah, it definitely differs from the way that I started out with my title until I showed you on there oh, the cover. Yeah. You remember, because you look around the shop, I mean, all these paperbacks, you've got to actually get close to see some of the names. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah when it's on a mobile screen, detail. it's really got to be made yeah. bigger. Um, I don't know. Yep. One. One more. Okay. One more? Yep. <sighs> okay, just one more. <laughs> um, okay. I was publishing this online as I wrote. I know that you mentioned putting it on other blogs and things is helpful, but what, what do you think, is that an option, a good option for people who are, e-publishing if they do it as a series and give it yep. away free to begin yep. with mm-hmm. and then when you get your book together you know maybe then look at putting a price in it particularly for your first time book but also experienced authors do this as well and just off the top of my head I can't name I know there's a couple of authors who do this and they write it with feedback along the way and give the parts away for free and package it as a whole and put a price in it at the end okay and you know we're harking back to Charles Dickens serial writing and what he would do, put it out bit by bit and put it all together in a book. So, you know, uh, what do they say is mm, how much stays the same as much th- as things change. I've reversed that round. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm. Mm. So what with website publishing then? Encourage comments, get, get people to give feedback yeah, as you're yeah. going. Free it's reads. Great. They've just got you know a few readers who are interested in doing mm-hmm. That is great. You get mm. this idea of what it's like engaging with readers. Yep. Internet comments are an interesting topic that we could do an entire <laughs> section on. Um, and in fact, I was going to talk uh, a bit about submissions uh, and a bit uh, of that. Uh, but we've run out of time and we don't want to hog the listeners' ears too much. There's been a lot of information. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Mitchell for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, and this is the part where we ask you to look us up. So, Dr. Mitchell, where can they find you on the interwebs? Oh, on the interwebs, oh, yes, ewanmitchell.com, but it's E-U-A-N-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L.com. And Twitter or Facebook? Uh, E-M word, as in... Capital M-word. E-M. No, capital E, capital E. <laughs> Luke, as always, thank yep. you for coming on to the show. Um, you have no choice, but you did anyway. <laughs> oh, it's good to be here anyways. Yep. Um, where can they find you? Yep. Keep looking at me on thesoulshardchronicles.com or... On Twitter, it's the uh, the Soul Shard. I think, it, yeah, the Soul Shard. Keep um, looking at that's me. right. Keep looking, keep looking at my writing. Authors are very. Um, we need your love. <laughs> we need your love all the time. Gratification. Right. Keep us alive. Uh, um, here, I'll quote you in on this. I put words in the right order usually. Usually, yeah. Sometimes I screw it up. But, you know, well, every writer could tell that. Too. If you want to find somebody who doesn't put words in any order, then you can come to me at uh, thepenofjoel.com. You can find me on Twitter at thepenofjoel. You can find The Morning Bell at themorningbell.net. 
um, there'll be a picture just to prove to you that this was done live if, in case you didn't hear any conversations <laughs> going on in the background or oh, the trams. Or the trams. <laughs> trams, mobile conversations. But it's a lovely yeah. night in Melbourne and we thank you listeners for listening to us online as well. And we hope you, um, that you join us on the next episode, which is on the 29th of That'd be April. April. Yep. That's been a problem for me. Uh, 29th of April and the um, guest is someone very, very special, and he's done young adult fiction, and it will be really good to have him on. We'll catch you next time, <laughs> next episode. We're out. Thank you. <laughs>